Hello, everyone. Welcome and thank you for joining us here tonight. I'm Erin Brown. I'm Editorial Director of Zocalo Public Square. I'm excited to moderate tonight's conversation and to get to know our panelists, who are all first-time novelists writing from or about Los Angeles. First, I'll introduce the panelists, and then they'll each treat us to a three-minute reading of a passage from their new books before we begin our conversation. Uh, Fatima Ashgar is the author of When We Were Sisters and is a poet, filmmaker, educator, and performer. They are the writer and co-creator of Brown Girls, an Emmy-nominated web series that highlights friendships between women of color. Along with Safia Elhilio, they are the editor of Halal If You Hear Me, an anthology that celebrates Muslim writers who are also women, queer, gender, nonconforming, and or trans. Omolola Ijioma Ogunyemi is the author of Jollof Rice and Other Revolutions. She was born and raised in Ibadan, Nigeria, and graduated from Barnard and the University of Pennsylvania with bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees in computer science. She is a professor of preventive and social medicine at Charles R. Drew University of Medicine and Science in South Los Angeles. She has been a finalist for the 2009 Penn Studzinski Award and has been published in Plowshares and the Best American Short Stories 2018. And last, Ryan Lee Wong is author of Which Side Are You On? He was born and raised in Los Angeles, the son of a fifth-generation Chinese-American father and a Korean immigrant mother, and today lives in Brooklyn. Ryan organized the exhibitions Serve the People at Interference Archive in Brooklyn and Roots at the Chinese American Museum in Los Angeles, both focused on Asian-American movements of the 1970s. He has an MFA in fiction from Rutgers Newark and lived for two years at Ancestral Heart Zen Temple. I'd like to invite each of our authors now to read a passage from their novel. Your first As long as there have been gods, there has been neglect. All our flawed gods run around, birth the earth, and then forget us. Skip off with each other, talking about god things, annoyed with the banality of our humanness. I gave you life, they say, when we complain, as they crush the tobacco into the beetle leaf, adding syrup on top, and I can take it away. Their yellow teeth gnashing and gnashing, and us, ungrateful humans, fold our knees a few times a day and expect the world to be handed to us. I made the earth turn again, they say, tired home from work with a bag of groceries. But you didn't play with us, we say, and they roll their eyes, get in their blue Cadillacs and drive away, go back down the street to their own apartments where they don't have to think about us, grow more trees from seeds, let them branch out to the sky. How righteous are small rages. See me, see me, we yell. God had to work today, they say from behind their computers, the dull glow on their faces annoyed. We want softness, we say, and turn away from the field of sunflowers that lush their yellow. Power, we say, and a volcano explodes. Strength, and the trees root in their trunks. Touch, and the sand clings to our feet. Allah has forgotten me. I whisper in my bunk alone, and I don't notice the moon shining her light on my pillow, reaching. 
1986, Remy. Aisha threw the first stone. The crowd of girls went silent as it arced through the humid twilight, striking the principal's thick ankle. The hush lasted a few seconds more as we processed her gasp. Our principal did feel pain after all. Then Nonso whooped and let a second stone loose. Stop, Mrs. Hastrop shouted, and 200 girls stepped backwards. She still had power, the kind that made some girls tie half slips over their heads before gathering in front of her house to avoid being identified and possibly expelled. But that gasp had strengthened a few girls who stood steady, their faces uncovered. Aisha, Nonso, and I were in that group. I felt a frizzen of spite-filled delight as I watched Mrs. Hastrop clasp her hands to mask her agitation. A few weeks before, she'd berated me in front of the school assembly for wearing a sweater she didn't like with my pinafore and seized it for not being a dark enough green. The sweater had been a gift from my aunt for doing exceptionally well in school the previous term. I'd wrap my arms around my chest, shivering in the harmattan cold, knowing I'd never get my sweater back. Mrs. Hastrop never seemed interested in how well our studies were going or in rewarding good teachers, never missed an opportunity to humiliate students or her staff in public, eyes dancing with malevolent joy as she tucked down a fresh victim. An old wooden desk in her office was piled high with a random assortment of items she seized from students. Blouses, sweaters, scarves, earrings, books, bags, socks, sandals. That desk and the trophies it bore were a symbol of her dominance over our tiny boarding school in Fiditi. The Ministry of Education had sent her a year ago, even though she'd made it clear to them, us, the trees, the grass, that she would have much preferred to head a school in Lagos. What do you want? Mrs. Hastrop asked now, her voice unsteady. Where should we even begin? I thought about the fired teachers, the low morale since she took over the job of principal, the fact that her predecessor, Mrs. Adenle, was beloved by students and no one had wanted her to leave. Respect, I whispered to myself, remembering the repugnant smell of stale fish stew wafting from her as she lectured me about her new school uniform rules. I was one of the best students in my form and generally avoided trouble, but Mrs. Hastrop had reacted as if I jumped the fence after hours and headed to a dance with the boys from Fakmonda Grammar School two miles down the road. I said, what do you want? Mrs. Hastrop let the question drip into the silence that had followed her first asking, her voice stronger now as she sensed our confusion. Food, came a voice from the back. No, not food, I thought, who was that? Mrs. Hastrop seized on the word eagerly. Okay, let's go to the dining hall. I'll ask the cooks to make you some jollof rice. She paused, with fried meat. A few of us shouted, no, bring back our teachers, but our voices were drowned out by the cries from the crowd. Fried rice, I want asaro. The crowd surged frantically forward and Mrs. Hastrop laughed. She waved her hand saying, follow me. About 60 girls were left behind in front of the principal's house as the throng moved with her to the dining hall. Aisha looked from me to Nonso, her mouth gaping. Imagine that, she said when she finally collected herself. She shook her head. All she had to say was jollof rice and they all forgot what we were here for. We'll never get those teachers back now. <clears throat> A busboy came with a metal wand that he jammed into the grill and lifted it away 
disappearing into the back so it could be scrubbed and offered to the next customer at the Korean restaurant with a fresh, gleaming surface. He came back with a gray plastic tub and threw our plates into it with an unceremonious clatter. Isn't it messed up, I said to mom and dad, how all the waiters are Korean and all the busboys are Latino? That's a pretty clear example of racial capitalism, except we're supposed to feel okay because the owners are Korean instead of white. Gah, said mom, can we go 15 minutes without an ideological critique? I just think we have to be aware of each interaction or else we're blindly upholding the white supremacist heteropatriarchy. That's a mouthful, said dad. How else would you say it? Back then, said mom, we said, the man. I smiled, imagining a day when the kids would make fun of our generation for saying intergenerational trauma and intersectionality. I see they're teaching you something at Columbia, said dad. Actually, I said, I learned about racial capitalism through Twitter and meetings, not Columbia. Everything in college is designed to insulate us from the world so we can patch over the neoliberal order without challenging anything structural. This is the son who cried when his acceptance letter came, asked mom. Yeah, so I was drinking the ideological Kool-Aid of the private university, I said, blushing. Everything pointed me that way. CJ got into Harvard, our teachers were throwing us parties. But once I actually got to Columbia, I met these privileged dummies from Connecticut who are only there because their grandparents have buildings named after them. It's a machine designed to perpetuate inequality. Dad harumphed. Sorry to break this to you, Reed, he said, but we could have told you that. Of course these neoliberal institutions want to perpetuate themselves. You're going to have to deal with them sooner or later, and you have the privilege to learn how now. Yes, yes, my privilege, I said. Want to remind me how much tuition is, too? Dad flinched like it stuck him with a needle. Grandma and Grandpa wanted you to have the best education possible so I could participate in the great American ladder climb where East Asians hoard resources and try to become white at the expense of black and brown people? Who the hell taught her son to talk this way? Mom folded her arms and seemed to grow more solid in her seat. I guess that's the point of these liberal colleges. Learn to talk shit about your bourgeois parents. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you all for sharing your amazing work with us. Um, before we start the conversation, I want to remind everyone in the audience that we'll be taking questions later in the evening. Uh, if you're joining us online, please post questions in the chat uh, on YouTube. So let's get started. Um, the starting point for this whole conversation and this start in many ways is that you're all first time authors, which is like a special moment. <laughs> and we have all of you here together. Uh, and I wanted to jump in and talk about that first. Um, each of you comes to this from, from a different place and from a different background. You're educators, poets, TV and film, medical informatics, uh, which I hope we can talk more about later. We also live in a time and in a place, uh, Los Angeles, where there are just many varied ways of making an impression on the world uh, through words and ideas. Um, there's poems, TV shows, there's tweets. So the question is, why write a novel? You know, why did you want to write a novel? Um, I'd like each of you to use this opportunity to tell us a little bit about yourselves, uh, 
you know, where you're from, what gets you going, and what the story was that you needed to tell and that needed to be in a novel to come to life. Um, you know, what was going on in your life that made you decide that you needed to write a novel and that the time to do it was now? And I'd like to start with Fatih, um, because you have a story that I, I, I think I know, have an idea of what the theme will be. Your book um, talks about a, a family of, of three sisters who are orphans. Mm -hmm. And I know that you had an experience uh, yourself uh, like that. So that might be your answer and it might not, but I'd like you to go ahead and start and tell us a little bit about the book and why, why you felt it was time to do a novel. Yeah, um, so I am, my, a lot of my background artistically is I'm a poet. Um, that's the kind of original genre that I've worked in and I'm a filmmaker. And I feel like poetry is a home for me. It's very much the way that I think I think through the world and approach the world. And um, as I was starting to write this novel, what was happening was there were, the novel is told through vignettes and it's quite lyrical, the, the, um, the way that the novel moves. So there's a very poetic quality, but there was something about the narrative that was coming to me that was beyond just poetry. So it was coming and there was um, a way in which there was a lot of characters, there was a lot of kinds of themes that I was trying to tell across the story that couldn't really just be contained to one poem. Mm -hmm. And so it became very clear to me that this was gonna be a longer piece of work and that it was going to be a novel. Um, and as you said, I am an orphan. I have three, or I have two sisters. Um, and there's a lot of auto-fictional elements in this book for me. And so it's definitely a thing that hits very, very close to home and is the reason why I think I gravitated towards writing it. Um, but really came from a place of wanting to explore um, things around what does it mean to be an orphan that is very counter to, I think, what the traditional orphan narrative is in the West? And what does it mean to actually contend with things like neglect and trauma that, um, and grief in a way that feels a lot more real to me than, than the ways that I've seen it portrayed in the past? Got it, got it. So it was sort of organic. Mm -hmm. You dove in and it took form almost on its own. Yeah, definitely. Got it. Lola, how about you? So first of all, I should say that this book took me 15 years to write <laughs> between grants and papers and other things. But it really started with um, a conversation I had with my mom when I was a teenager in Nigeria. And she mentioned that her aunt was married to a woman in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And I was like, wow, that, that kind of blew my mind. I started thinking about my grandmothers. Neither of my grandmothers spoke English. Neither of them had a Western education, and but they were brilliant women, and you know how they would view my life. And mm -hmm. so I, I wanted to explore the ways in which women um, had autonomy in the in pre-colonial Nigeria, and what life looked like for modern Nigerian women. And it was just thinking about how, for some, for some Nigerian women. So if you were born back then and had the autonomy you had our current reality might look dystopian to you. And so depending on where you're coming from in history, you know, one woman's uh, modernity is another woman's dystopia. And I wanted to explore that in, right. in the book. Did you always think that it was going to be a novel? No, I didn't, no, I didn't. I knew it would be in, sort of interrelated, you know. I, I had, I knew I could write a story at a time and 
you know, share with others. And so that's why it took the form it did. Yeah. Got it, got it. And Ryan, how about you? Sure. <clears throat> so in real life, my mother, who's here in the audience, um, worked on something called the Black Korean uh, Alliance in 1980s Los Angeles, in South Los Angeles. And that was something I kind of always knew in the back of my head. Um, and, of, and I was four years old when uh, the 1992 LA uprising happened. So it was a little bit before I was really like forming full memories. And so that whole history has always kind of haunted me. It's kind of cast a shadow over the city. It's cast a shadow over my life. Um, and then, you know, in real life, I was a young activist in uh, Brooklyn, New York, when um, there was uh, an incident where a Chinese-American police officer shot and killed a young black man in a public housing stairwell. And again, the Chinese-American community um, was kind of pitted against or pitted itself against some of the Black Lives Matter organizers. And so I felt that these two histories were related, that we we're actually caught in a sort of historical cycle where a lot of the traumas, a lot of the um, fractures in the communities from 92 and from before hadn't actually healed. And I always knew that um, this wasn't gonna be a nonfiction piece. This wasn't gonna be like a political tract that showed us um, how to like organize around this. Um, I knew that these histories were so painful that really only fiction had the capacity emotionally to hold them and to say something about them. Mm -hmm. And fiction, I think, is still one of our best vehicles for showing um, a character's internal transformation. And I felt like that was the kind of transformation that I wanted to show. Got it, got it. When you read the book, everybody, the mom character is a hoot. She's wonderful, <laughs> so I want to meet your mom. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, was any of it just because, like, I want to write a novel, because it's a novel, right? I mean, like, that's, that's the thing. Was that ever part of it, or not so much? No. no. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> when, I, when I got to the Zen temple, so I, I lived for two years at a Zen temple, and one thing you do is you meditate a lot, and you have to like look at your intentions. And one thing that came up was exactly that. I was like, why do I want to write a novel? Like, I only have an hour of free time every day. Like, why do I want to use that writing this novel? And I was like, oh, because it's like cool to like have a novel out and like have your name out there. And then immediately I was like, that's not a good reason. Mm -hmm. And I had to stop. Because like, if I were to write a novel for that reason, I would be miserable, actually. Right. It's really not worth it. But so you, I had to find that deeper intention. But you kept going, right? I paused. Uh -huh. And then once I found the deeper reason for doing it, that's when I could continue. Right. Yeah. For each of you, um, and you can, we can take this in any order you want, what did you have to learn to be able to write a novel? Like, how was it different from other things you had written before? Um, what caught you off guard? Uh, what was surprisingly easier than you thought it would be? What was surprisingly more difficult than you thought it would be? I think for me, um, a lot of the way that I came up through writing was actually through community. And it was being a poet, you sat with other poets. It was a very oratory experience. And so there was kind of a way where you were building um, friendships and relationships as you were doing it. And it, even as, you know, like I would go to open mics or I would perform at shows. And so there was a, a kind of way where the poems were being edited aloud because I was responding to what people were responding to and what was working and what wasn't. And something about um, writing a novel and writing across a long form project in this way 
was how incredibly um, not community oriented it was. So how, how it was often showing up um, to the table a little bit by myself in a way that I, I don't think I was fully prepared for. And um, that I didn't, like, I didn't anticipate not having the ability to share parts of it while it was in process with community or with other artists or with, um, like, to really kind of take that journey by myself. And so there was a way where I think the novel actually was one of the most isolated and meditative processes that I've ever worked on in terms of art making across any genre that I've ever worked on. Um, and there was a lot of learning how to listen and trust yourself and trust your intuition when things like that were happening. And, you know, in edits of a novel, especially on a character level, if you change one thing, it ripples through the whole book. And so it's not as easy as like, oh, I'm just going to, sometimes I follow the line when I write, I just follow the intuition of the line. And if I ever edited and changed it, then it would ripple throughout the whole book. And then I would have to catch and ripple and go through. And so it was just really, really interesting to kind of have that be a process and to not have it contained to a single scene or a single poem, but instead to really have to like rethread and rework a lot. How long did it take you to write the book? I started writing it in 2018. Okay. So during COVID. Mm -hmm. That would have been isolating. Too. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> How about you, Lola? So I'll echo one thing that Fatima said in, in the sense of um, scientific writing is often not a solo um, effort. So I have a, lots of papers with lots of co-authors. And so writing something where you're doing it solo is isolating in some ways, but I always took advantage of writing workshops. <laughs> and so that for me was the community building aspect. Um, and that really helped. You asked about you know, what you thought was, um, what, surprised me or what, what um, so one of the things, so I, I, I took the first story, which is, you know, starts in 1897, to a writing workshop, and I was originally thinking about writing, I, I never met my great aunt, so, mm -hmm. so I was originally thinking of writing her story, like a, a fictionalized version of her story, and I'd written a draft, and so she was married to a wealthy woman, that was a tradition in Nigeria at the time, so a wealthy woman who was dealing with infertility, could marry a younger woman and um, have, a, have a child. And the entire society would be like, yeah, that's, that's your child. And the man involved had no rights <laughs> to, right. to, yeah, it was like a living sperm donor. And I was just like, <laughs> this is amazing. So I, so I was writing it from the perspective of the person who would have been my great aunt. And one of the people in the writing group was like, I'm really sorry, but She's like the least interesting character. I want to know about the woman who, yeah, I want to know about the wealthy woman. And I was like, oh. And I, and I thought about it, I was like, yeah, actually, what, what would motivate? So, so I reframed, I, I restructured the whole story and focused more and uh, had to do a lot of research on um, sort of pre-colonial women in Nigeria who were wealthy, who were, you know, had power and how they negotiated their way in society. And that to me was amazing. I didn't think I could do it, but once I started writing, it just it just came, and I was pleasantly surprised with that. Did you both, before I get to Ryan, did you both find LA to be a good place to learn how to write a novel and to do it? Yeah, so I took I took lots of workshops with writing workshops at LA, yeah. <laughs> and that that really did help me. So the community here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I always wonder if, like, having lived in New York and you live in New York now, I mean, New York is such a social place, and you're 
rubbing up against people all the time. And I, well, but you were, you were actually at a Zen monastery, so maybe <laughs> not. <laughs> but, but, but there's a difference between you know, the thinking life in New York and the thinking life in LA. And, and so I'm, I'm wondering about just being in LA, the LA-ness of LA, aside from the people in LA, is there something about being here that actually creates a, a really interesting work like this? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think that um, LA was like one of the first places that I lived that really opens nature to me. Like I grew up in, I grew up being like nature is for white people. Like I had just no like conception of nature being something that would was a home for me. And um, I think being in LA and the kind of culture around nature and being able to like be by the ocean and go for hikes and be by trees actually really, really saved me in terms of writing this book. It was very helpful. Um, so there was definitely a way that I think the geography of LA really helped. That's interesting, yeah. Ryan, what, what surprised you about writing your book? <clears throat> what did you have to learn? Yeah, so I went in a little bit cocky. I was like, I've written papers for college. <laughs> like I've like done exhibitions. I've done a lot of arts criticism. Like, just 250 pages, I can do this. And uh, I was deeply humbled by this process. Um, it took me years. And for me, actually, probably the hardest part was how vulnerable you have to be on the page. Um, you know, it's so different from writing arts criticism where I get to talk about someone else's art. Uh, this is, and even though it's fiction and there's like a bit of a screen between me, the person, and uh, the characters, um, the kind of emotional digging you have to do. It's like you're taking your heart and like putting it on the page, and you're doing that again and again and again. And um, you know, people always tell you this as a beginning fiction writer, you have to let your characters suffer. You have to let your characters really be painfully wrong sometimes and make terrible mistakes. And you have to feel all those feelings with your characters as you do um, as you write every one of those scenes. Um, so in a way, it's, quite, it's a quiet process and it's often isolating, but it's also can be um, very grueling in this way. Um, but then of course it's worth it because you get to practice all of those things in a relatively safe container of art instead of like out in the world with people. Yeah. You know. now, Talking about LA and your book, I mean, your book is all about LA and it's all over LA. Yeah. Like, what does LA mean to you? <laughs> and why did you write, do your first novel about LA? Sure, yeah. So, um, you know, shout out to the late Mike Davis. Um, he uses this epigraph from Walter Benjamin in City of Quartz uh, that says something like, um, a writer's first book is always going to be like memoir because the place they're from. Um, will not have been lived in vain. And that's LA to me. That is absolutely uh, my first 18 years in the city. That like, um, my narrative of LA growing up was that like nothing happens here, it's really boring. We just like drive around and go like get boba and like stand in strip malls. And like that's what the characters do in this novel. <laughs> um, so I had to honor that. Um, but it was only by like leaving LA that I could go back and be like, oh, that was a legitimate experience. I mean, like maybe it's not shown as much in fiction or in film, but um, those like in-between moments and like those moments in the car and um, 
those moments in strip malls, um, that's where life happens. Yeah. Um, and that's what I wanted to pay tribute to in this novel. Right, right. I mean, all three of your novels, I think, as a reader, it seems that they are digging into your histories and your homes and your families and the people around you and your friends and growth. Um, what's it like having these stories out in the world? I mean, has that been, has that been a kind of a weird trippy experience to have people read these very personal, very in-depth, very wrought things and, and, and talk to you about them? I mean, what, is that, what has that been like? In many ways, it's been gratifying yeah. <laughs> and terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's it's one thing to share because I've, I've always sh shared my writing, but with you know family and friends. It's another thing to have it out in the world and have people interpret things in ways that you didn't necessarily intend, but you could see that there's many different ways in which people perceive things. Right. And I'm always learning, like I've, <laughs> I've read some things that people say, I was like, oh wow, was that what I, okay, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah. Subconsciously, you know, and, and so yeah, I, I found it to be gratifying and somewhat scary experience both. Right. How about you, Fatih? Um, yeah, I think that there's a really interesting thing about like making work where when you're in the process of making it, it's so deeply yours and it's so deeply, it, you're kind of in a romance with it. You're very like taken by it. And then the second you release it, it stops becoming yours. It becomes everyone else's and everyone else has their relationship to it. And there's kind of a process of just releasing and being like, yeah, that's, it's whatever people think, like it's no longer it's no longer the relationship that I had to this thing. And I think that it has been really interesting to see the book kind of ripple in the world. It just came out like a few weeks ago, so it's still quite new. Right. But um, the, I agree, I think it's the kind of gratification of people, of people like interacting with it and saying things. There's people who've known me for so long who, who've read the book and um, th that's a different kind of response too because it's like people who've known you for 15, 20, mm -hmm. you know, 25 years who are talking to you about it. Um, and I think that there is a kind of closeness that it creates with you and your audience where, because even if like it's not, you know, even through the lens of fiction, there's themes that clearly are very important and whoever's resonating with those themes, it's very important to them as well. So there's kind of a kinship that's being made. Um, yeah, and I feel very grateful for that. I think that there's a kind of um, there's a kind of vulnerability when you can be that vulnerable and you can allow certain parts of yourself to be seen that vulnerably. It's it's truly a gift, I think. So I feel very grateful. I imagine that sometimes people might react to your book and point out something that you had, like 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 the observation about the young couple in the story, uh, Lola. You know, they they're the interesting oh. characters. <laughs> Although I thought I thought. The older lady was very interesting as well, actually. Um, but um, have you had anybody come say anything to you about the book after it sort of left the nest that surprised you or gave you new insight into into your story or, or yeah. the story or LA? I mean, first I'll just say I agree with Lola and Fatih. It's the best publishing this book. It's like so gratifying. It's so it feels so great because the flip side of being that vulnerable is that you get to be known by people. Like I've actually never felt so seen and so known in my life. It's a, it's a little overwhelming, but it's also wonderful. Um, 
the most interesting conversation I've had. So, you know, a lot of this book centers around this young activist who's very like anti-police, who's very anti-establishment. Um, and at one of my readings, um, the uh, campus security guard, who's a Chinese American guy, had bought a copy. And so I went up and talked to him and I was like, you know, why'd you buy this book? <laughs> <laughs> and um, he was like, oh, you know, I was working at the NYPD when the Peter Leong Akai Gurley mm -hmm. trial was going on. Um, but then he started to say these really profound things about um, how it's really like our responsibility to start to educate our community and especially the elders in our community about the history of racism in this country. And so it was this like completely unexpected moment, which like the character in the book would never have believed was possible. And here I was in real life, like having that conversation and then like having this little opening where we were seeing each other as people outside of all the narratives I had about him and he might have had about me. Yeah. Yeah. Who are the writers each of you look up to? I mean, did you have people you, were, you had in mind as you worked on your, on your books? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, when I first read Justin Torres's We the Animals, mm -hmm. that book, like, I read that like 10 years ago, and I remember reading it and being like, oh my God, I think I could maybe write fiction. Like, there were, it was, that just seemed so impossible to me until I read that book. And the vignettedness of it, the, poet, the poetics of it, it was just so gorgeous and breathtaking. But then there's like so many things, like Freshwater by Kweke Mezi really felt that way too to me. It really helped me think through a lot of things. I think about um, writers like Ross Gay and Toni Morrison, people who I feel like have just really influenced my work in general for so, so, so long. Um, this book has a lot of references and allusions to uh, Lord of the Flies and the ferality of, um, of that kind of youth and that kind of isolation, um, which I think was a book that always influenced me too. Um, and. Yeah, there's just so there's just so many. There's so many writers who and artists who just have left their impression and their mark on me. And um, I have a pretty significant acknowledgement section. That acknowledgement <laughs> section is like many, many pages. And in it too, there's like a lot of just very clear riffs of this book charted out this thing for me. Um, I think about also another Bullshit Night in Sex City by Nicholas Flynn. Mm -hmm. That book was like incredible for me in terms of um, what what, like, a, it's a memoir, but in terms of how you could write in a certain way. And so, yeah, I just feel very, very um, indebted and gratitude to the lineage of writers that I come from. Um, there's, a, there's too many writers <laughs> credit, but as I said, it took 15 years, so there, I'm an avid reader, and so there's a lot of people I was reading. But um, in, 2018, I was reading a lot of Octavia Butler, and I think that that came through in the last story yes. of those who, um, so Toni Morrison, definitely, Chimamanda Aditya, um, there's uh, Ben Okri, who, um, he's in the epi epigraph, there's, there's a lot of writers that I was, you know, yeah. reading. Yeah, <clears throat> one of my um, challenges with this book was how do you capture this intergenerational activist conversation? And in particular to like capture um, this mother character who like somehow um, went from being an immigrant from Korea to being radicalized, being this hardcore activist. And so for books, I actually end up turning to a lot of um, books by novels and fiction by leftist women, socialist women. 
um, Grace Paley, Natalia Ginsburg, Doris Lessing. Um, and I'll just say like for Grace Paley in particular, you know, Grace Paley was born in the Bronx. She was a socialist, she was an anti-war activist. And she writes these like really beautiful little short stories that capture so much like intergenerational history. And like a lot of the stories are just like a couple people sitting around a kitchen table arguing with each other. And they're so wonderful. And she really taught me how like two characters having a difference of worldview at the kitchen table can capture everything. Are you gonna write another one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can't say, I'm like very su superstitious and I can't say okay. anything about it, but yeah, definitely. Will it, will it be LA based as well? We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna ask all three of you actually, what comes next? I mean, is there something else that comes next before the novel or, or uh, with your writing? Sure, yeah. One really fun thing about publishing also is um, I've gotten to talk a lot about the book and my process and also to write a lot of essays kind of about this. So I have an essay about Grace Paley coming out. Um, and I'm really interested actually in this intersection of writing and Zen Buddhism and meditation, um, which of course has been so um, formative for me. Um, so writing about that has been really wonderful and I think that's something I'll continue. Oh, wow. How about you, Lola? Do you have another novel in you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Have you already started? I have, but I hope it doesn't take another 15 years. <laughs> You take a sabbatical. <laughs> Is LA part of part of this novel? No, yeah. but I'll, I'll I can figure out a way to. Great. How about you? Um, I honestly think, like, especially after a big project like this, like, what's next for what's next for me is just life. Like, I'm just gonna live for a little bit <laughs> and then um, see what comes, you know, organically. Terrific. Terrific. Get to check the time. <laughs> Can we open it up for audience questions? Terrific. Sorry if you couldn't hear me a minute ago. Um, if you're in our in-person audience, you can line up over here if you have a question to ask the panel. Um, but we'll start with a question from our online audience, which is uh, for everyone on the panel. If your book were to be made into a movie, who would you cast? Ah. <laughs> I have an answer. Because my mom was already called this. My mom was like, I want to be played by Sandra O. Oh. <laughs> so if anyone who has a connection, you know, talk to me, talk to my mom. We really, I think it would be a good fit. So I would, um, I think the, the last story is what, what I would think of as being uh, maybe adaptable. And you wanna explain a little bit about what happens in the last story? <laughs> so the last story is set in the near future, it's set in 2050. And it's, it's set in, it starts out in Nigeria, but we find out that the characters moved back to Nigeria from the US for various reasons. I don't want, I don't want to give any spoilers. But it, it, it paints a picture of the US if um, you have a nativist government for, let's say, decades. So what, what, what would happen? And so it's, 
some, some, some people have said it's it, it could be seen as dystopian, but um, I think there's also a message about friendship and how it helps us to navigate, but you know. Um, so anyway. So who gets to be the star? So Viola Davis with a lot of makeup, you know, to make her older because the last story, the, the you know, one of the characters is already right. 78. Right. Yeah, I think, I think she would absolutely the hell out of that yeah. <laughs> um, I think that the like only par probably like named person that I would cast is Dev Patel as the father. I think that he would just be he, there's a, just a gentleness and a sweetness to him. Yeah. And that's so beautiful. He's an incredible like everything I've seen him in. I'm like you're just such an incredible actor. And I think having him as that kind of father role. Um, particularly when the kids are young, I think would just be very beautiful. Do you have someone in mind for the uncle? Oof, I don't. <laughs> no, I do not. Um, but that's going to be quite the character yeah. to cast. Yeah. You guys can read the book. <laughs> what about that? Thank you. Is anybody, so are there movies coming out that you know of? Not that we know Announcement, of. announcement? Okay. <laughs> Um, we have another uh, question from online, um, which is, all writers have their own styles. However, do you feel LA inspires a unique genre or style of writing? Also, what genre of writing do you feel will impact society more in the future? Um, <clears throat> I'll answer the first part of the question. So. Um, I really love James Joyce, and you know James Joyce wrote most of his books in exile. He had this motto, "Silence, cunning, and exile," which I really loved. And there's a joke in this book about how like uh, Koreans are the Irish of Asia because they've been like colonized, and um, they're like these like small fighting like countries. Um, and so uh, one thing Joyce said about his work was like if um, Dublin were destroyed, you could recreate it brick by brick just by reading his novels. And I really loved that. Um, and so one of the problems, though, uh, in writing about LA is, you know, if you've read uh, some of Joyce, all the characters, like, walk around. <laughs> and that's a problem because in LA, like, my experience of LA was, like, no one walks around. Mm -hmm. And so instead, I had to put these characters like in these cars, and like that adds like a different vibe to the whole scene. So um, the bodily experience of this city, the way memories and associations happen, um, is very different, um, and that is like a uniquely LA um, bodily experience. I think. Right. Yeah. Anybody else have an idea about what LA inspires in particular and styles of writing? You know, one thing I'll add about your book, I mean, yes, a lot of it happens in cars, but I think you, you really evoke all these different parts of LA very, um, people might be in cars and might be having these little conversations about their boba, but, but th there's a real sense of these places and what they're really like and how they fit together or don't, or don't interact yeah. um, that I think really comes through very effectively in your book. Um, how about the writing of the future? I mean, that was a little bit of what I was thinking about at the beginning when we think about why a novel. I mean, does the novel, is there a place for these kinds of books? I mean, obviously there is, but I mean, is there something else that replaces it? Is there some new, uh, you know, genre of the future that uh, that we should all be thinking about or that you're thinking about right now? 
I mean, I think that there's there's just like all the different genres of writing are just so incredibly important and they also hit just such different things. Like as, I don't know, I think a poem is, it's just such a slowed down moment of an experience, you know? And there's such a beauty that it offers, but then there's, there's kind of nothing like taking the time to get to know a character that you kind of see through a novel or that you can kind of experience through like, you know, different arcs of a TV show or of a film or something like that. And I think that, but there's something about the interiority that a novel has and the self, the selfness that a novel has. It really brings out um, the kind of interior space of a character and it kind of shows a world, the, the galaxy that kind of exists in every single human being. And so I think that there's a way that the slowness of a novel and kind of what it allows you to experience and explore, there's there's really nothing that is re replaceable for that. And so I think that there is a way where when I'm craving a novel, when I'm craving that, it's, it's because I really am looking for that kind of slowed down connection. And I think in an ever increasing fast paced world, there, that's such a deeply beautiful, cherished thing. Yeah, yeah. I think we have some more. Some we do. Lined up here. Hi. Oh, oh. Hi. My name's um, Fabiola, and I just wanted to ask. I know that LA is very important to each of your stories, um, but LA, such as a fourth city, what of your own personal background or like, um, do you hope shines through from your novel that it's not typical in like a typical um, Western narrative? Mm. Well, I'll start because <laughs> my, my story is not, my book isn't set in LA at all and essentially starts in 1897 um, Nigeria, so pre-colonial Nigeria and moves, we, we get to see Nigeria back then, we get to see Nigeria in the 1980s and we get to see the characters move through different countries, uh, Poland, the United States. So I think there's a, there's a lot that it offers that's might be uh, new for, for readers. And um, I try to, I, l I love to travel, and I try to let that come through um, in writing. And so I, I say that I first started traveling when I was a kid through, through books. <laughs> and so there's, there's, a, there's a difference, um, but, but there's an interconnectedness with traveling through books and physically traveling in the world. And I try to um, have that show up here. I think one of the strains in, you could say, Western narrative that uh, I'm wary of is violence as entertainment. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think HBO has made this worse. <laughs> um, it's, um, what, what, what does it mean about a society for violence to be fun? Like to see people being torn apart as fun. And so with this novel, you know, something I was really interested in is writing about violent histories. Mm -hmm. So these histories of police violence, uh, the history of the LA uprising and Rodney King, um, but within the novel to actually have as little violence as possible, mm -hmm. um, to not replicate those violences. And so that actually created a very interesting formal question was like, why would you read a novel? Like what keeps you interested if it's not um, with those kind of typical mechanisms. 
Um, and so it very much is about um, these other questions of deep inner exploration of intergenerational conversation, of um, discovering one's interiority, of turning towards compassion. Like those are the driving questions in the novel. So it's definitely not gonna be like the kind of novel you kick back and watch in the same way that you would um, some of those shows or some of these, uh, even other works of fiction that are violent. But um, that was a gamble I wanted to make. Yeah, I think also like kind of in a similar vein, but I, I think that there's just so much in my novel that kind of goes against the resilience narrative that's so often depicted in the West of like, oh my God, look at all this hardship. And yet all of these characters are so resilient and they like pull themselves up by their bootstraps, which I think is just like a completely bullshit um, narrative. <laughs> and so in this novel, it's really like, well, what actually happens when people are sitting with the trauma that they've experienced? And when the characters do suffer, as you were saying, like, what does that, what is the toll that that suffering takes on these characters? And when we're kind of not just washing it away or just being like, yeah, that's something they experienced and then they move on and they have happy relationships and everything is great. And just being like, no, that's actually so counter to what people then have to like learn how to trust and learn how to trust and learn how to love when they've been so deeply wounded and so deeply hurt and how, and how that is. And then just on a like very specific uh, or like technical note, like all of the characters in this book are, um, most of them are South Asian Muslim characters, uh, Muslim protagonists. Um, uh, there's a really big exploration of queerness by the main um, character um, in terms of both gender and sexuality. And it's a very, it's not one that's defined through the novel. It's one that's just kind of explored and, and experienced. So it's a very experiential ex um, take on identity and thinking through what that means. And so there's a lot, I think, that it kind of, there's a lot from a vantage point that's perhaps different than some of the vantage points that we've become accustomed to seeing through novels um, in the West. And there's a lot of the kinds of dynamics that sometimes happen in communities of color that are so specific around, um, around those different vantage points. So there's moments where the kids have more privilege than the adults because of citizenship. There's moments where, you know, when you're talking about vulnerability and who's the most vulnerable, that's a constantly changing thing in the novel because that's true to experience is privilege is relative and it really depends on who you're in the room with. And, um, and it really depends on the moment and what's going on. And so there's, there's just kind of a way that through the vantage points of that, those specific characters, you, you kind of see um, what everyone is up against in a, in a slightly different way that I think isn't, isn't necessarily the, the dominant narrative in the West. Is there another, another question over there? Hi, my name's Linda. Thanks very much for this discussion. I know that you have all written fiction, but nonetheless, people in your real lives, maybe siblings who are also orphans, parents, et cetera, show up in your novels in some way or another. I'm just curious what kind of feedback you got from those people, either if they're like, oh, wait a minute, that's how you saw it or mm -hmm. saw me, or, you know, and did you get, um, did, did they read any drafts and give feedback early on? And, and did your relationship with them change in any way? So I'll, I'll, I'll take, I'll start by saying I have, I have a younger brother and my very first attempt to write a book was with my younger brother. I was maybe 
seven and you were six. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We decided to write. We decided to write a book. We we read all the all the children's books in the house, and we read all the children's books in the nearest library. So we we're like, okay, we're gonna write our own book, and uh, basically wrote this thing, which my mother said was good, and. Then we had to decide on an ending, and I wanted a tea party, and he wanted explosions, and it didn't work <laughs> out. So, <laughs> so my, my brother has been like a really big cheerleader from my work, and when I was writing my stories, um, I would share them with him. And uh, he thought, at that point, I, I wasn't thinking about even publishing my work. Right. And he said, you need to put in for this Ken Studzinski, you need to put in for this competition in South Africa, it's, it's for you know African writers. And I was like, nah, I don't think. And he kept bugging me, and so I did it just to shut him up. Right. <laughs> and ended up being a finalist. So, so in, in, my, in my case, um, I, I'm actually happy that my brother actually likes my work and, it, and it's, you know, it, it's, that's been great. My mom, on the other hand, is a literature professor. I never shared my stuff with her. Right. <laughs> She's a literary critic. I, like she read it when everybody else right. read it. Right. So that's very different. Ryan. So, um, you know, this project started actually with an interview with my mom. Um, I said I was doing research. <laughs> I took out my iPhone and I was like, so what were you doing in 1992? And um, and I didn't know it was gonna be a novel at that point. Um, and I kind of kept it secret mm -hmm. for years, which was necessary. And then when I signed with an agent, I was like, okay, there's a chance this is gonna be in the world. So I mailed my parents a hard copy. Um, they had the tracking number. And so my mom like literally sat by the door <laughs> because she knew the package was gonna arrive. It arrived at 8 p.m. She like sat there and read it till 1 a.m. 3 a.m. And then my dad woke up at 5 a.m. because he gets up early and he read it. So like within 12 hours, they had both read this novel and they decided like I could stay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is cool. um, and it's been really wonderful, actually. It's been a really wonderful process to get to talk about it, to joke about it. It's, it really is just part of the conversation. And I do think, you know, um, in my deepest intention, there was nothing about me that wanted to like score a point or grind an ax with this novel. It wasn't about that. It was really about trying to portray um, all these characters with love, with compassion. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think I agree with that last part about w writing a novel and um, just really kind of sitting with like, what is the intention behind this? And like, what am, as an artist, like how am I defining my intention? How am I defining my ethics? How am I defining how I'm doing this? And, um, and like really, really learning how to like sink into that even when things were muddied or complicated or you didn't know how to approach something and it, it, was, it was difficult. And I think that um, the process of writing this novel was probably the most difficult process and brought up a lot of conversations with me and folks that I never thought I was gonna have and were quite difficult. And in some relationships, I, it repaired some relationships that I never thought were possible to repair. And it um, strained some relationships that had a lot of um, decay that needed, in, and once you know the language hit the air, it, it kind of just was open and, and the wound was open in a very particular way. Um, 
And I think that um, that was like part of the process too of like working on it. And the, one of the, I think in the question was, did people read the novel and stuff? And it was like before, a year out before I published it, um, I had folks uh, read the novel. Um, it was like very, very important to me. There were certain things I changed because you can never anticipate how someone is going to react to it. So there was definitely some things that changed or some things that I was like, okay, I'm gonna um, you know, make this a little bit different. Um, but ultimately too, what happened was I had to kind of weigh up what was really important for me to say and what was I unwilling to not say when I was so close to saying what I had been trying to say for so long um, yeah. and just navigating that line. Thank you. So we're out of time. Um, so I wanna thank all of you for coming here and talking with us. Uh, it's been an honor to speak with each of you, and congratulations. It's amazing. Thank you also to everyone in the audience for joining us tonight. You'll be able to find a summary of our talk at ZocaloPublicSquare.org next week, plus interviews with all of us. Please subscribe on, to Zocalo's newsletter and podcast for more great conversations, and follow us on social media. Everyone, please stay for our reception to meet each other and continue the conversation. You can also pick up a copy of each of our panelists' books, and they will sign them. Um, Fatih, Lola, and Ryan, thank you so much for a fantastic conversation tonight. Everyone, please give our guests another round of applause. Thank you so much.